Welcome back for the conclusion of writer Bill McKibben talking with Scientific American's Mark Fischetti in McKibben's home in Ripton, Vermont. In some sense, and certainly not in the end of the book, but here and there, and when you're talking about food, it, it, it sounds like you may, uh, you might be talking about uh, a switch from chemicals as the way to make farming more productive or more local to information as a way to make mm-hmm. farming more local and more productive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wondered if you could explain a little bit more about that. Sure. Bring up a solution or two. For yeah. You. Farming, we've lived through this period when we told ourselves and everybody else that farming, you could make it, you know, so that, so that any idiot could do it. You know, here's the system you put this on and three weeks later you spray this and three weeks later you spray this and three weeks later you spray this and then it's time to harvest whatever it was never that simple and it's caused all kinds of problems from the expense of doing that to the resistance that arises what's cool is to see people a figuring out alternative methods and b figuring out how to spread them so these like indonesian farmer schools now hundreds of thousands of people have trained each other how to grow rice what we would we would call organically but that's not the point there it's sort of low input so it's not expensive to grow and high yield you know the spread of velvet bean across parts of uh latin america uh people figuring out how to enrich soil in really profound ways really quickly much more quickly than the textbook says it should be possible um uh, and spreading the word person to person, organization to organization. And you can see the analogs even in this country, you know. Now when people want to learn how to grow things, and they do want to learn how to grow things, Burpee Seeds doubled its sales in the last two years. Uh, it's gone through the roof. It's the only thing that's been going great in our recession, you know. Um, um, people don't, you know... Uh, 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 look at some instructions from some seed companies about how to do it. They go to YouTube and and you know figure out how to compost, how to double dig, how to do biointensive gardening, how to do all these kind of things. One of the things that we need to really recapture and then places people are are some of the old methods of spreading information, which are really good extension services. Mm-hmm which all too often get kind of taken over by the chemical companies and the fertilizer companies, especially in the developing world. Um, but it's really good to see them being reclaimed in many cases. Right. This is all sounding like it makes sense, but uh, how does it sort of feed back into uh, you know, the switch from growth to, to maintenance of wealth and resources? Probably the most important asset that you could have if you wanted long-term stability, especially in an era of ecological upheaval, is uh, good soils, right? Soils that allowed you to grow a good amount of food, soils that were able to absorb a lot of water when it came because we're, the amount of rainfall is steadily increasing, soils that could hold that rainfall through the kind of extended droughts that are now becoming more common, um, um, you know, good soil is precisely what low-impact, low-input local agriculture builds. 
And it's precisely what industrial agriculture destroys. You want it, you want a food system that doesn't depend on immense amounts of, uh, uh, fossil fuel. So among other things, doesn't depend on immense amounts of travel hither and yon. Right. You know, so you build things that you dispense a little bit with the argument that, you know, Kansas is better suited to growing wheat than any place in the world. So let's grow all the wheat right. there. Right. And realize that it still makes sense to grow some wheat in Vermont, um, too, um, which we've now people have started to do. The bread we had at lunch was, you know, with wheat grown here. Uh, that's a, that's a good point that, um, because the mindset of sort of industrialized agriculture is uh, well. Let me start, step back. So mm-hmm. People will argue against it by saying, "Hey, you know, the carbon footprint of." flying food thousands of miles is ridiculous and so you should grow things locally but the, the counter argument is but if you can grow so much wheat so efficiently in Kansas even including the transportation for thousands of miles it's yeah. still more efficient in terms of resources yeah and, and and there are you know these are the kind of calculations that'll start to sort themselves out once you remove the sets of subsidies from mm-hmm. fossil fuel and food and things and we'll begin to get a better sense we don't really know the answer to that question at right. some level um, but clearly it'll make a lot of sense to grow a lot of things closer to home, you know, in the same way that it doesn't in, in, in the world that we're coming into, it doesn't make sense to generate all your energy in a few centralized places anymore and disseminate it around the world. You know, those deep beds of topsoil were sort of like deep beds of coal or something. They're running out, you know, they depend on to be used at least the way we're using them now tons of synthetic fertilizer, immense amounts of water, which in much of the world we're running out of. I mean, the way that the water table is dropping in the Punjab and the North China Plain, I mean, that's one of the scariest single indicators in the whole world, especially since in a hotter world, every acre foot of water that you pump to the surface goes much less far than it used to. Evaporation rates don't go up just a little bit. They go up a lot when you raise the temperature a degree or two. Uh, let me get back to the um, complexity idea and, and a little more specifically. Yeah. We kind of started to talk about this earlier, but the, the Obama administration recently, a few days ago, basically proposed that financial institutions that are too big to fail should, should have a plan in place right. to disassemble themselves if there's a crisis. You know, some economists would say that you should just break these institutions yeah. up now because they're too big and too tight. So I wondered... Uh, if you would agree with that, and if that would apply to other types of it's To me, absolutely. To me, one of the great lessons of the last couple of years is there's a lot of things that are too big. Our senator, the wonderful Bernie Sanders, recently introduced the Too Big to Fail is Too Big to Exist Act in the Senate that would, you know, instead of, instead of treating them like these are nuclear reactors, so we have to figure out some, you know, safeguards and cooling systems and stuff for when they, you know, said, no, if, if, if there's that much danger of a meltdown, then it's too not safe to have. I mean, clearly these things are way more dangerous than nuclear reactors, you know, and, and run far more cavalierly, you know, just like, I mean, I mean uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's almost beggars the imagination to think of what these you know, to, today's today's story is that Dubai is 
melting down economically. Who could have predicted? Who could ever have predicted that building an indoor ski mountain, you know, in the middle of the the Arabian desert might not turn out to be a great <laughs> business strategy? You know, I, I have no idea how anyone could ever have predicted that. You know, I think it makes great sense to think the reason that we built things so big is because it allowed for faster growth, right? If if the thing that you're mainly aiming for is growth, then there are efficiencies to be gained through size that allow quicker growth. But that's not what we need now. We need stability. We need solidity. We need things that don't wreck apart. And I think the analogy I use in the book is, you know, we don't need racehorse exquisitely bred to go as fast as possible, but whose ankle breaks the minute that there's a divot in the track. We need plowers built for, not for speed, but for durability. And just even the language that we use to think about things is very important. Growth has been our mantra for so long that we're just completely used to it as the obvious idea. But it's at this point, I think it's much easier to make a case that durability needs to be our mantra or, you know, that instead of expansion, that hunkering down is the metaphor for what we need to be doing now. Yeah, and, and not to, to be too trite about words, but um, it seems like you need a word like durability because hunkering down has this negative connotation. Yeah. And sustainability means essentially nothing to anyone. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Sustainability is sort of too neutral to really... I like it. durability. I've always yeah. liked. Yeah. yeah. Maturity would be the word we really want, but it's been stolen by the AARP. So right. <laughs> right. And, and, and maintenance is another word, which... Not very flashy, is it? Yeah, it's right, right. It's hard to sell yeah. that, right? But durability is a virtue ruggedness. Some of these things people really, I mean, sufficiency is very much a, you know, an American virtue, or at least it was. Mm. And community. Yeah. yeah, The problem with sufficiency is that it quickly becomes all about, you know, your own little off the grid paradise where you shoot anyone who comes nearer to your vegetable patch. So community, you know, some mix of sufficiency and community is a, useful thing to be thinking about, I think. Right. Any, any um, uh, industries or types of institutions you would single out as needing to be uh, broken up? Well, the financial system, the energy system, and the agricultural system share enormous similarities, it seems to me. Very small number of players, incredibly interwoven. And so you get these cascading effects if something goes wrong, you know, your chicken pot pie gives you botulism and it turns out that they're, you know, in 48 states and no one can figure out, you know, which one came off what truck and how. And so, you know, this house runs on solar panels, right? If the solar panel fails, well, I have a problem, <laughs> but it doesn't, it's not a problem for anybody else. Uh, it's one, it's, we're tied into the grid. So it's one tiny node on the system and there's 0.00001% less energy flowing into the grid, I guess. But, but, you know, 
if some terrorist comes in the night and attacks my solar panel, it doesn't, you know, I have to fix it, but it doesn't spew deadly solar particles into the atmosphere. It doesn't shut down the eastern United States power grid. It doesn't. Right. Let's see, that's, a, that's an interesting um, thing to think about, though. Um, in, the, in the part of the book where you talk about energy, um, it sound, I think you use the state the states as the mm-hmm. definition of local, right? Mm-hmm. And and so other other definitions might be towns and if or, regions, or regions for that right? matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so where where local lies is going yeah. to depend on what you're talking about. Yeah. But in in energy, just as you're starting to say, if if the, the local entity has a problem and it's not intertwined with anybody else, then they have a problem. Yep. So is there some level of sure? There's plenty of there's plenty of good. I mean. Uh, it's nice to have an electric grid, right, that connects that. The problem is that ours is configured so that all the power comes from a few centralized places along that grid and spreads out along it. And you want to think of a grid, I think, that works the other way, where power comes from every node, where it looks like a looks like a root system, you know, uh, of a tree or something, uh, with zillions of input points where you essentially have farmer's market in energy. How exactly that'll develop, I mean, I, I don't think it's that at all difficult to start figuring, you know, envisioning scenarios where, you know, the price that's being paid to me for producing solar power shifts in the course of a day or, you know, there's demand shifts here and there. And I mean, it's fine. There's going to be lots of interesting intermediate technology to fit in it and, and all of that. But its basic characteristic will be spread out, not centralized. Now, for that to work, though, you need the grid. So, who builds the grid? And how does it work where, where that's not centralized? Well, I mean, you you build pieces of it wherever you are and interconnect them. You know, I mean, that's we've built lots of things that way yeah. over the years. Yeah. So, without any central control. I mean, who knows how it all? Yeah. yeah. We're we're. we're indulging in speculation that's beyond my is <laughs> again I'm I'm interested in trajectory yeah, yeah. not eventually I'm not I'm not a utopian in any way I don't have any sort of schema for how the world should come to rest I'm just interested in what direction we're moving in any given moment uh, this though this discussion about the power system as well as the you know breaking up the financial system as well as the US um, and other countries being so in debt <laughs> Um, it seems like there's a transition. There may need to be a transition period where, it, even if if local distributed everything or as much as possible, where your where your utopia, it's not something you can just no exactly right. And so the question becomes, and, and in fact, my sense is that all of this will happen more or less logically. That it flows logically from the physics and chemistry of the world that we're moving into. Just like the centralized world flowed logically from the, from the physics and chemistry of fossil fuel. Uh, the question is, the most interesting and important political question, really the only political question is, can we make it happen fast enough to avoid all-out collapses, which are completely possible, plausible, maybe even likely, under the patterns we're operating on now. And so that's why my sort of global work is all about trying to figure out how you 
force these kind of global changes that move these systems more quickly than they want to move. There'd be no urgency to any of this if we had a hundred years in which to do it. But, but the science would indicate that we don't have a hundred years and the results that we're already seeing from the world would indicate that we have incredibly small amounts of time, that we've already passed the point in some respects and we best get to work trying to force the spring, as it were. Right, right. If you had to pick two, three key factors. Change the price of energy to reflect the damage it does to the environment. Mm -hmm. If fossil fuel actually carried the cost that you know, of its damage that it does, then we'd see all these things happening more rapidly. That's why, you know, Copenhagen would have been really nice and why whatever, at some point, a cap on carbon that raises its price is sine qua non for getting anything done. Uh, because then all of a sudden, you're not just going to the local farmer's market because you want good tasting food or you like your neighbors or you have some ideological belief in localness. You're going because you're getting a very strong signal from your pocketbook that it makes more sense to grow food locally than to grow it marinated in crude oil and ship it around the world. That's I, I think that's the biggest driver yeah. by far. Yeah. And it's funny how there's a sense in which environmentalists, people who do this, are great believers in markets at some level, you know, at least in the information that, because markets basically are just an information system, right? Right. Um, So, you know, we need to spread that message. Fossil fuel is bad stuff, very far and wide and fast. There's there's one other aspect of this, um, which is the psychology part of it, um, and that, uh, it's the Treasury Department about a week or so ago was talking about this increasingly ridiculous debt <laughs> that the United States at least has, um, and they came up with four ways to solve it, right? And three, only one included no no pain. This is their terminology, right? So one um, was uh, inflation, let inflation run rampant. One was uh, raising taxes and cutting services. One is um, just default, but that has major ramifications, right? And the the fourth solution was growth, and growth is the one that's not painful, so to speak. So if we we don't choose growth, uh, are are Americans in particular or or people are more ready to shoulder some pain? Look, this is one of these questions where you're going to find, I mean, I mean, the, the, the only answer to it is you want to pay me now or you want to pay me later, <laughs> you know, because the, the, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the whole premise of like economic stimulus, right? Mm-hmm. Is we're going to jumpstart this son of a bitch and, and it's going to get going so fast that it'll start throwing off money left and right. And then, you know, we won't have to, we'll get all our money back times three and whatever. Well, you got to be a pretty deep believer in Ben Bernanke or somebody to really make that case much longer. We're, you know, we're two or three zillion dollars now in debt. I don't know how much money it is, $10 trillion. You know, astonishing sum. Uh, It's pretty hard to imagine a scenario where we're humming along so fast that we grow our way out of our problems. It's much easier, unfortunately, to imagine a scenario 
like the one we're seeing around us where more and more growth creates more and more problems. Now, as I say, I'm the furthest thing from a utopian. I don't think there are easy ways out of the troubles that we're in. But I do think that there are, you know, that reality carries its own kind of beauty and pleasure. And that the world we're capable of creating will have certain redeeming qualities, including a much stronger sense of community and probably a somewhat closer connection to uh, the natural world too. Right. And that's an interesting feedback. Uh, there's this uh, a term, uh, uh, videophilia, that's a sort of kicking around this idea of, you know, the more that kids spend in front of the electronics, also the less connected they are to the land, so the less... Yep. Likely, yep. just just by going outside and playing, yep. right? Not that they have to go hike in the woods. Absolutely. Just going outside to play, and so the less connected they are, the less they're going to care. Obviously, um, it sounds like you that. want to reverse that loop yeah. somehow. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's one of the reasons it makes me so happy to see the big farm garden at Middlebury. Uh-huh. You know, for a lot of kids, it's one of their first experiences, and that they suddenly, wow, this is this is kind of cool. So you might benefit from a feedback we're going to have to hope that there's some serious (laughs) feedback loops and and I think that there are you know um, um, that there are real pleasures to be had in in the natural world in contact with the natural world and probably even more profoundly in contact with other people Mm -hmm. you know uh, we've assiduously traded community for consumption for a long time the main American project since the end of the Second World War right. has been to build bigger houses farther apart from each other. Right. That's had the effect of, among other things, destroying community. The average American has half as many close friends as they did 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's no wonder that by every measure we can find, we're less happy with our lives than we were 50 years ago, even though our material standard of living has trebled. So... Whether or not you locate the damage in the kind of climate change that comes with that material standard of living or the uh, loss of community that comes with it, that's one of the things that makes it possible to imagine a change. It's not going to be all loss. There's going to be some loss and some gain. Let me get back to the to the Internet point mm. a little um, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction that I as a parent have this myself. You know, kids constantly texting or whatever. And you think you're not, you're in front of your little screen, you know, you're not with people. But in a way, they are. And they, they will certainly say, I'm, I'm with my friends all yeah. day, like in real time. Yeah. <laughs> um, we don't know. I mean, this is, the Internet's a very interesting phenomenon. We have no idea yet what it means. It's such a, so it's like a thousand times more interesting than television. Yeah, uh, right. It took about 20 minutes for a smart person to figure out what the effects and limits and whatever of television were going to be. Clearly, you know, within a year, people were calling it the idiot box and the boob tube and whatever else. And there was never any reason to change that assessment in the entire history of television. It was, you know, did more to damage. But the Internet's way more complicated than that. It has lots of terrible things about it. Who really wants to spend, you know, a third of your working life answering email, you know? It's like, oh. You know, and it gives you access to hideous things, you know, that you shouldn't have access to. But it's deeply empowering. 
its ability to allow people to communicate is fascinating. It gives you, you know, extremely low barriers to entry to do remarkable things. You know, we built with essentially no money and no organization behind us the most widespread day of political action in the planet's history. We couldn't have done it three years ago. It required not just the internet, but all these sort of extensions of it into cell phones and tweets and SMS and whatever that has been built on it. And this this uh, this antidote to your life being too too local, similar similar effect in a way, right? Yeah, your absolutely. And your friends that absolutely. you're texting are, really... and some of them are very local and very. And then there's a sort of larger world. Yeah, right. No. I mean, one way to think about it is, again, this is a sort of function of physics and chemistry at some level, physics in this case. It's, you know, the, uh, the, the energy load involved in moving a recipe around the world is very different than the energy load involved in moving the ingredients around the world. You know? Are there places in the world where you see some of these things happening, even if it hasn't been deliberate? Yeah, you know, you talk about there's Vermont, parts Vermont, of it happening all around. Yeah, but some European countries strike me as absolutely no hell. If we were all Scandinavians, we'd be fine. You know? <laughs> I mean, they're you know they sort of do a lot of this stuff. There's big chunks of it happening, and there's parts of the third world where you can see incredibly interesting things going on. I've written a lot about what I think is the most interesting city in the world, like Curitiba in Brazil, mm. um, which just developed along these lines for. 25 or 30 years, more now. Um, parts of India, there are amazing things happening in parts of China. There's no question that the main thrust all over the planet has been in the direction of a kind of homogenization. And that homogenization is the product of reliance on fossil fuel more than anything else. As that breaks down, we'll see people turn more and more to all the kinds of odd experiments that have been going on. But local agriculture around the country is flourishing. The number of farms in this country has increased in the last five years for the first time in, I think, like 150 years. That's very good news. Bill McKibben's new book is Earth, that's spelled E-A-A-R-T-H, Making a Life on a Tough New Planet. An excerpt from the book is in the April issue of Scientific American Magazine. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky.